Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. That's the simple, bold promise that Paul makes in this verse. Many of us growing up in church memorize this verse, and let's admit it, on the face of it, it's a very encouraging set of words. Isn't it nice to think that no matter what happens, God in heaven is always looking out for us. He's always working on our behalf, and he's working for our good. And I'll tell you, in the happy times, that's not so hard to believe, right? When your best friends throw you a surprise birthday party, when you get a great parking spot at the gym, which I never understood why you're looking for a great parking spot at the gym, when you fall in love... When your child hugs you, when the college accepts you, on the good days, it's not so hard to believe that God's looking out for you. And you, you know, you thank the man upstairs, right? But the truth is, there are seasons of our lives, and sometimes it seems like this is the majority case. There are seasons of our lives where it seems like there, it's really hard to find the good in anything. That I'm trying to find something to be thankful for, but when I look at the cesspool my life has become. It's all tragedy. It's all loss. It's all heartache. I'm not, I'm, I don't understand where to find the silver lining. My whole life has become a cloud. And in those seasons, which are pretty frequent, the question is, can those words still possibly be true? Can it possibly be true that even in those seasons of dark an unending suffering. God could still be telling the truth when he says to us, I am always working for your good. I think the reason this promise doesn't always feel true is because the words in all things give us a little bit of problem. Paul's promise isn't just that on the good days God's working, but in all things. And that's the offensive part of that whole verse is, how can that be true that even in this terrible day, God's still working for my good? And that's because I think many of us, we make the mistake of thinking that God, God's work is primarily found in our circumstances. So that if life is going well, God is good. He's there. He's working. And when life is going bad, God has forgotten us or abandoned us. In other words, when things go well, we easily see God at work. When things go badly, we wonder if God's even awake. Or maybe he's paying attention to everyone else but me. I'm the one unlucky goat who has been ignored by God. Have you noticed that NFL players only point up to heaven when they score? Nobody ever jumps for the pass and is so catchable, it bounces off his hands, hits him in the numbers, he drops it and goes, that one's for you, Jesus. They never do that. And in the NFL player's behavior, we see something of our own theology. Why would we ever point to heaven in the bad days? God has nothing to do with our tragedy. He's only visible when life is a comedy. When it's a fairy tale with a happy ending. That's when we see God. But the amazing truth that Paul is trying to break through here is, no, that's not the way it works. Whether your life is going well or whether it's not going well, 
God is nevertheless still very much at work for our good. And that's the, the amazing truth, is that the primary work of God is not seen in whether life is up or down. That'd be too simplistic. Then God is the same thing as luck. Is that not true? If just God is at work when life is going up and God is not at work when life is going down, isn't God just fate, luck, blind chance? But of course, God is always at work. And so it's important that in faith, we're able to receive and hold on to this promise that at at this point, and I'm going to still unpack it, so don't get mad at me. It still doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm asking you to take this much on faith. That statement is true, and it's not a word game. It's not a mind game. It is very much true that this is, in fact, what God is doing all the time in good and bad situations. He is at work for our good. Here's another thing to notice. It's not a blanket promise for every human being. Okay? There are some things that every human being gets promised by God, and that is that he will love them, that he invites them to know him, that he will reveal himself to them. There are certain promises that are accessible to every human being. But this amazing promise that in every situation, good or bad, God will work for our good, that's not a blanket promise delivered to the whole human race. It is reserved, it says, for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I don't think those words are written in a spirit of exclusion or prejudice. It's not saying, all the rest of you get out, this isn't for you. It's saying, don't be foolish and think God's lying because this is not at work in your life. This is not a promise that is found and fulfilled in every human life. But it is particularly fulfilled in the lives of those who truly love God and have been called according to his purpose. And the reason for that is because this is a work that is done It's fueled by mutual love and commitment. It's not a work that just happens. It's a work that must be sought after, desired, yearned for. And so it requires openness on our part. And those who don't love God don't want God messing with their lives. The truth is that some of the greatest work of God cannot be done in our lives unless we yearn for it. We want it. In that way, I've always said God is like a vampire. He can't come into your house unless you let him in. Okay, you've heard that, right? In Fright Night, vampires can't just walk in your house. You got to invite them in. Well, God's the same way. Just coming to this building will not get the work of God accomplished in your life. There's no magic in the air here. I, I, you know, I can try to keep you awake, but my words coming out of my mouth don't have that kind of supernatural power. When God speaks through me, when God speaks through his word and you open your heart to it, amazing things start to happen. So it's not as simplistic as you go to a comedy club, the guy's funny, you laugh, mechanically, ha-ha, cause and effect. It's not that way at all. It's like saying, I say to a girl, I really love you. You have to love me back. Don't you wish it worked that way? That the intensity of your love for someone would make them love you back just the same? But isn't love mysterious too? It doesn't work unless both people agree. And the greatest work of God in our lives requires love and commitment going in both directions. That's why this promise is not reserved for everyone, but only for those who are actually in a real and open-hearted relationship with God. So now having set all that up, it matters supremely what we mean by the words, for the good. 
This is the part where we suspect God's got a lot of fine prints. He's going to pull a switcheroo. Oh, yeah, I'm working for the good. And the good is you're going to learn how to appreciate suffering. Oh, man, I knew it. The church always rips you off. It, it holds out all these beautiful promises just to give you stones and coal in exchange for your hope. That's not the case at all. But it, but it matters a great deal how we understand these words for the good. It cannot mean that God writes a happy ending to every story and ties it up with a nice bow. It doesn't mean that just because you're suffering, the suffering will always end in a wonderful triumph and everyone will love you and you'll ride off into the sunset on a beautiful white horse. I wish that were the case, but in fact, that's not true. Do you know that they estimate there have been some 70 million martyrs who have been put to death for their Christian faith? since Jesus walked the earth. That's a lot of people who are not killed in spite of their faith, but they're killed precisely because of it. For those people, being faithful to Jesus didn't result in a happy ending as the world would see it. And yet, these words of this promise are still true for those 70 million martyrs. So what is it exactly that Paul means, what God means when he says, I am tirelessly in every situation working for your good, and here is the punchline of that joke. It's that God's good is that he is making us more like Jesus. Now, before you get all upset, think that's some kind of ripoff, let me me tell you a few things. First, let me tell you a story. When I was in university, um, I've told the story, I think, once before, many years ago. I doubt you remember, right? (laughs) So let me just act like it's the first time I'm telling it. When I was in university, um, I I wanted to make a little extra pizza money, and so I served as a guinea pig in the psych department. And I remember one time I went in for this this test, and they made about 12 of us sit in a waiting room and said, it's going to be a real simple math quiz, about 10 questions, you'll be in and out in 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, man, they're going to pay me for a whole hour, and it's only going to take me 10 minutes. So I was in a great mood, and we sat there looking at each other. You know how when you're only going to know each other for 10 minutes, you don't commit. You're like... What's up? I don't know you. I don't want to know you. And then 10 minutes later, the girl pops her head and goes, hey, we're having some issues. Sorry. Just be patient. And she left again for another 10 minutes. So I'm like, all right. She comes back after another 10 minutes, same excuse. And by the point, we're like, well, still, an hour's pay for 30 minutes commitment, not the worst thing in the world. The fourth time she came in, people are starting to get a little antsy. I started using the word ridiculous a lot. You know, that, that's the word we, when you're not allowed to cuss, that's the word you say when you're really frustrated. This is ridiculous. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of clown house are you running here? And I was getting really upset with these people. By the 50th minute, she walks in with the quiz, finally, and we're like, all right, so it's going to take an hour after all. And I get this 10-question quiz, and I was okay at math. So I'm like, I'm going to fly through this. My revenge will be to finish it in two minutes and throw it in your face. I'm not even getting graded, so I don't care. But, you know, being who I am, when I got the quiz, I had to get 100%. So <laughs> I'm like, mm, trying. And what they did was it was multiple choice, and a couple of the questions, none of the choices were the right answer. And I'm like, isn't this something else? These people can't run a psych experiment. They can't even do math. By the end of it, I pretty much crumpled it, and I threw it in her face. I'm like, I don't even want the money. You guys don't know what you're doing. And she finally comes in. She goes, everyone settle down. 
The whole room was ready to lynch her. She's like, can we just explain something? This exam, this experiment had nothing to do with math. It had to do with studying the behavior of people in waiting rooms when they're frustrated. We've been video surveilling you this whole time and taking notes on each one of you on your words and your behavior, attitude, and posture. And I'm like, isn't that something else? And if I had known that, I would have put on a different act. I would have been like, you know, Lord Jesus told me to be paid. I would have done something differently. And here's what I learned. Why I'm telling you that story is sometimes you think you know what's going on. Sometimes you think you're gaming the system. Like, I got this all figured out. I, I, I'm going to indict everyone around me. You all failed. This is a mess. It's ridiculous. Life is ridiculous. How can this be my life? How unfair. And you think you got it all figured out only to find out in the 11th hour, you're an idiot. You totally missed the story. The real story had nothing to do with what you thought was going on. The real story was not what was happening to you or around you, but what was happening inside of you. That's the real story of our lives. Stuff happens to everybody. Good stuff and crap equally happens to every human being. That's as uninteresting a story as I could tell you. This is so unoriginal. Hey, dudes, listen, stuff's going to happen to you. Some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be bad. Amen. Go in peace. Like, how boring a sermon is that? Because that's nothing. That's just the facts. The real story is what all of that does to you. And just think for a moment, never mind the story what happened to you or what you did. Think about the net effect of all of those happenings to shape the person you've become today. That's the real story of you. The same exact set of stuff happens to different people and it produces a different reaction. So the real story is not what happens around you, but the real story is what's happening in you. That's the part of the story that God takes a huge interest in. And the good news is that's the part of the story God is tirelessly, unceasingly working on your behalf. It's not as interesting to him whether your life goes up or down. What's interesting is whether something profoundly, eternally good is going to happen as a result of it inside of you. And the beautiful freedom that that brings is that whether life goes up or down, your soul can keep growing and you can become more eternally beautiful like Jesus Christ. That's an amazing piece of news. Because if you don't have that piece of news, then we're just like all the other mammals on this planet who will endure ups and downs and one day become worm food. And that cannot be the whole story of our lives. It can't be. Verse 29 tells us what verse 28 promised. When it says that in all situations, God is working for our good, the good that he's working for is that he is conforming us to the image of his son. Now, that's not some cheap ripoff. It's one of the greatest promises ever made in history. I want you to think about this for a minute. I truly believe this with all my heart. Jesus Christ is the most beautiful person who has ever lived. I don't think that any thinking person in history has ever studied the life of Jesus and says, whatever, I have lived a much more beautiful life than this fool from Galilee. Have you ever met anyone to stand up and say, that Jesus has got nothing on me. If you want to imitate anyone, imitate me. I am unceasingly perfect. 
Every good attribute which we look up to in people is found in Jesus. Think about everything you naturally admire in another human being. Sensitivity, courage, boldness, kindness, forgiveness, joy, laughter, a sense of humor, loyalty to friends, concern for family, self-sacrifice, the capacity to believe in other people, to empower the weak. He notices little people. He never walks past a cripple without his heart being moved. He had no money and yet never struggled with insecurity. He was homeless, never regretted it for a second. Everything that I love in people, I see in one person named Jesus. If I could aspire to become like him through the ups and downs of life, if this world is going to shape me into something, and at the end of that that process, I have to say, this is what I've become, I would love it if at the end of my life, someone else would say to me, you know who you remind me of? That guy, Jesus, I read about in scripture. That's whenever I'm with you, I hear you talk, I see your mind. There's something beautiful in the way you live your life. It reminds me of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And if I could hear those words, I would say that every single thing I endured was worth it. Because at the end of the day, you're all going to be, you're going to turn into something. At your funeral, Lots of people will come out and remember you. And they'll say true things about what you were. Do you know how many funerals I've been to where the, the, the family is reeling, not with the shock of loss, but what do we say now about a life so cruel, so distant? I was biologically connected to this person, but in my heart I feel so little. What can I say now about this man? This woman, we're laying to rest. Maybe thank you for the hard lessons. Thank you for teaching me what I don't want to grow up to be. But imagine if at the end of your life, God in his unceasing shaping work has used every turn in your life, both good and bad, not wasting a single event. And he's used every little bit of it like sandpaper to polish you into the likeness of the most beautiful person who has ever lived. Can you imagine what a treasure that would be to carry into eternity? What a worthwhile report card for your human life that would be. So many people go to the grave bitter, angry, regretful, jealous, unforgiving, What a tragedy if after 80 years of walking the earth, that's the sum total that could be said of what this world did to us. And God is not content to let that be the story of our lives. The good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that the same spirit who raised dead Jesus back to life is breathing new life into our mortal souls. That's an amazing promise. Do you recognize this man? These are words he spoke to the wife of one of his first disciples. She asked him, hey, you know, I come from the West. Her name was Millie Pollock. And she said, I come from the West. Everyone where I come from believes in Jesus. Do you ever think about Christianity seriously? 
And Gandhi's words were, I did once seriously think of embracing the Christian faith. And here's why. The gentle figure of Christ, so patient, so kind, so loving, so full of forgiveness, that he taught his followers not to retaliate when abused or struck, but to turn the other cheek. Listen to these words from someone who didn't even follow him. I thought it was a beautiful example of the perfect man. Do you realize that we want to, we want to acquire so many things that have no meaning or value in eternity? But this is the one prize God is unendingly, unceasingly working to give us. And that is no matter what happens in our lives, he wants to conform us to the image of his son. I just got to quickly address the question, how does he do that? And Romans 8.11 tells us that it is through the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us. And just as, as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to our mortal bodies by this same spirit living in us. That means two important things. One is, if you're a computer nerd, I, I'm kind of a computer nerd. I got to use computer language. He reformatted your hard drive. He made it possible for there to be another way for you in this life. The Bible says that before we meet Jesus, the, the description it uses is he says we were dead in our sins. That's not some hate-filled accusation. It's a description of reality that before we meet Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are literally dead spiritually. That when things happen to us, only the most natural reaction will run its course. So when someone cuts you off in the road, you get ticked off. When a friend betrays you, when someone betrays your trust, when someone acts selfishly and they wound you and it costs you everything and they look smug about it, you're going to have a reaction. Any normal human being will have a normal mammalian fleshly reaction to that offense and that hurt. And before the Spirit lives in us, that's the only story that will get written is you hurt me, I will hurt you. For other people, they're not fighters. So what happens is when life throws those things at them, their reaction is to, to shrivel away and hide, and be afraid, and insecure, and to say, I won't let anyone in anymore, because that's too scary. Everyone I let in hurts me. That's what it means, in one sense, to be dead, is that we have no options about how we respond to this world. There's one, one course, and we will run that course every single time. But when God's Spirit lives in us, he opens up a side of our hearts that was dead before, that wasn't there. And he says, it's possible now for you not to simply react to life as life throws it at you, but to choose a different way. That doesn't mean you will automatically do it, but it means the capacity to even make that choice now exists. So that someone can preach to you, choose a better way, and now it's possible for you to do that, to make that choice. It won't be easy, but it now is possible where it once was not. And then the Spirit continues that work steadily, quietly, by influencing us in the quiet of our hearts. So let's just use a very 
everyday example. You're on Facebook and someone makes a post that is just so inflammatory, you almost soil your pants in anger. You're just, you're red in the face. You're like, what kind of prehistoric moron is this? And you just want to unleash, and it's easy on the internet, right? All of us are very courageous on the internet because, you know, no one can actually hit us online. So you just, you're like, I'm ready to, and I may not fight you in person, but my, my pen is mightier than my sword. And so I am going to unleash on you, and at the end of it, you're going to want to basically end your own life because I will shame you so badly. That's the feeling I get when I read the comment section on just about any blog post. So much anger out there. And in that moment, as you're feeling so much offense, so much judgment, anger, condescension, in the past, you would have started clacking away on your keyboard. But for those who are in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in us, there will be a moment, just a flash, you've got to be looking for it, a flash where the voice of God in your heart will say to you, hey, calm down for a second. And I think what he's asking is this question. If Jesus could take over your whole body right now, could enter this chat room, could enter this message board, this online space, what would he say to this person in your stead? If through you, Jesus could enter the room, he could enter this situation, what would he contribute to an already ugly scene? Because most of us are like stupid firemen. We load our truck with gasoline instead of water. Here I am. If you weren't on fire before, you are raging now because my contribution is to find a pile of poop and add more. That's what I do. Right? Will that stick in your memory? I hope. Because that's what we do. We find poop and we add more to it. That seems to be what the nature in us wants to do. And Jesus says, could it occur to you that through you, I can now start to enter those broken places where all that reigns is anger and, un- and offense and this undignified attitude? What if through you, you could open yourself up? And the way we lay hold of this shaping work of God's Spirit is that whenever we hear that small, steady voice, we submit, we yield, and we say, Jesus, help me. I want this. This is why it's not promised to everyone, but to those who love him. Do you even want to look like Jesus? Is it what you yearn for? Is it the prize you're seeking? Because if we want it, what happens inside of us is we feel that and we say, Lord, right now I want so badly to unleash on this imbecile online. This person who has taken everything from me, I want them to feel every last bit of the hurt that I had to feel. I want them to go through the valley, the desert, just like I did. And yet, I feel you messing with my heart, tugging me towards another way. First, I thank you that that other way is even open to me. And then I say to you, if that's where you want me to go, I will swallow my pride. I will choose a different path than anger or bitterness or unforgiveness or despair. I will do what you would have done in my place. And as I submit to that, day by day, I'm not just learning to imitate Jesus. He is beginning to change me from inside. There's a point in learning anything where you're just imitating. You're mimicking behavior and action. 
But there comes a magical point in which it becomes a part of you. That happened one day for me with tennis. It happened one day with me learning bar chords on the guitar. I struggled and I wrestled and every day I studied film and I tried to do this or that. But one day I'm like, oh, I got this. And I love hearing Zoe's language from gymnastics when she's got a new skill she's trying to learn and she's working on it with her coach. And then one day she goes, mom, I got it. I got my front tuck or whatever she calls these things. I don't know what any of those mean, but this is big milestone. I worked, I worked, I worked, and now it's in my repertoire. It's part of me. I can do that move anytime, anywhere. It's mine now. It's not just something I learned to do. It is something I am. And imagine if that's God's work 24-7 in our lives. I'll finish with this. Paul's final promise here in verse 37 is, in every situation then, because of this unending work of God to shape us like Christ, we are then more than conquerors. See, if, if just getting through trials just means surviving them, that's not extraordinary. God is not required specifically to get us to survive trials. Non-Christians survive trials every day. Some of them do it with greater graciousness, greater strength than many Christians do. I marvel at the human resilience that I see all around me. There are people who don't know Jesus who have gotten through some of the most horrific nightmares in life. They've come out with some dignity intact, and I marvel at the people's ability to survive. But what Paul is saying is surviving is a good thing. But imagine if through the trials of your life, you could do more than survive. What if you, go, you don't just conquer, but you more than conquer? And what he means is everybody can survive a trial, but not everyone can grow through it. For some people, they survive the trial, and whatever was dead stays dead. Whatever was dark stays dark, and they just get through it at zero, neutral. At least I'm intact. Ten fingers, ten toes. Good news. But what if through the trial, you could come out on the other side more beautiful, more attractive? And I'm not talking about your looks. I'm talking about the effect you have on other human beings. What if you come out with a deeper sense of who God really is, with a greater gratitude than you went in with? See, I've seen people I'm very close to go through terrible trials. And I think to my heart, this is going to help them. They're going to come out softer, somehow broken in a good way. And it breaks my heart to watch so many of them come out the same bitter curmudgeon they went in. And I'm like, wow, that trial was wasted on you. What an unpleasant chapter for no reason. It's like a bad chapter that doesn't move the plot forward one bit. Can you imagine reading a novel and says, and then the protagonist just suffered a lot? Let's just keep going. You're like, what was the point of the suffering? Such a sad episode could it not have led to something noble. And the good news is that as we open ourselves up to the shaping work of God, whether it's a trial or whether it's a triumph, all of it can be used to shape you. <clears throat> I'm supposed to be done right this second.
But it's Easter, so I'm going to take two more minutes, if you would indulge me. I want to just end with a story of just how powerfully God is committed to working in our lives. I learned one day that I don't even have to be awake or conscious for God to be doing this work in me. I remember one day when Noah was around nine years old. I didn't get his permission to share the story, but it's no embarrassment to you. Noah did something naughty that was very nine-year-old-ish, and I wanted him to act like he was 19. And I was so mad and so disappointed. I remember being furious at him for no good reason. I just, it was rare that I unleashed, but I unleashed that night. And he went to bed very upset. I went to bed very guilty. Not all of you are parents, but any of you who are parents, just would you raise your hand with me if you've ever had that night? I'm ruining my child permanently. I stink at this. Like, I just wrecked this kid. He's going to have to go see a therapist because of this night. And as he, is, he drifted off, I'm like, Ugh, why do I do that? And just before I went to bed, I said this simple prayer, God, I'm a mess. Please spare him the fallout from my mess. But I'm really asking you, change my heart. Well, I went to bed, and I had this dream, and it was one of those dreams that is so vivid. I woke up, and my pillow was soaking wet. I was sobbing as I woke up. It's a weird experience to wake up and actually be crying in the real world. And the dream I had was that I lost Noah, and he died. And I felt the full weight of the sadness of my son dying, And it was really, really hard for me. I woke up as if it was true. And the relief washed over me that I woke up from that nightmare. It was the middle of the night, and my face was red and swollen. And God had not just answered my prayer. He had completely broken my heart for my son. And he was dead asleep, but I went to his room, and I laid my hand on his forehead. And I pledged that night in the name of Jesus that I would be a different kind of father that I would show more grace. I begged him to keep shaping a new heart in me because I hated the person that I was that night. I don't know how he would agree, but I think since that day, a lot changed for me as a dad. Can you count on the fingers of one hand how many times I unleashed on you since you were nine? Just like I taught you at home, remember? (laughs) But you get the picture is that I really believe that night God did a profound work in my relationship with my son. So much so he doesn't remember the day I'm talking about. (laughs) Hallelujah. It scarred and shaped me. But that's what God does, is he's so committed in everything to working to shape Christ in me that if I open myself up, he could do it while I'm asleep. Isn't that amazing? That this is the nature of our God. He is after one thing in our lives. And that is that when we trust him, he would make dead people come fully alive. And in our life, we would look like Jesus. I want to invite you just to bow with me for a couple minutes as we respond. Here's the... The little secret I think all of us walk around carrying is nobody else has to judge us. And in fact, I don't like it when people point out my flaws because the truth is we all know the terrible darkness that lives inside of us, don't we? 
Have you ever been horrified at the things you can think, the feelings you could harbor, the words you could speak? Have you ever been amazed at what you're capable of doing in your brokenness? I've done stuff that at one point in my life I never imagined I would do as a human being. Since I have to preach here, I won't tell you all of the details. But let me tell you that I know what's in me. And I think the secret, the dirty little secret some of us keep is we've settled for just learning new behaviors to mask that darkness. That we've learned new words, new actions to throw people off the scent. But at the end of the day, under our well-polished facade, we know that there's a monster living under here. Somebody that I'm ashamed of and I don't want to be. And for a lot of us, we give up hope that there's anything more than that, that we can actually change. But here is good news. When God comes to work on us, he doesn't just paint the outside with a fresh coat, but he begins to change us from the inside out. You don't just learn anger management, but he starts to take that anger away and replace it with joy. Can you imagine being so truly changed that you don't even recognize yourself someday? This is the good news of the gospel is that new life doesn't start when we die, but it starts when we open our lives up to the shaping work of God. So if you are like me and you know you need to change, truly change, will you invite Will you open your heart up to this 24-7 gracious work of God? That in everything, even the stuff that is so tragic, He wants to make you more beautiful. And He can do it. He won't stop. He won't rest. If you open your heart and don't run the other way, He will catch up to you and He will change you. It's a promise He makes and He will keep it. So let's take a moment and let's open our hearts to that shaping work and confess the darkness that needs to change and invite him in. Let's do that for just a minute or two and then we'll close our service. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.